it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. One week away. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in. Glad to have you here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And then around the clock for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. It's all right there. All your program needs. You can also follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor and host of this fine program. Here's our lineup today. Lee Zeldin. Is he really going to do this in New York? Is Lee Zeldin a Republican, a conservative Republican, going to win the governorship of New York State? A week or two ago, even when we had him on, I would have told you probably not. I'll still tell you probably not, but there's like a question mark now. I'm not sure. Kathy Hochul is imploding. He is surging, and he is here on the show half an hour from right now. There's a new poll that has him up a point. Man, what a time to be alive. Carl Rove in the next hour, he will be here, the architect. We'll pick his brain one week out from the midterm elections. What does he see coming? Is it a wave? Is it a red wave? How tall? And Brett Baer, in our final hour, Brett and Martha McCallum will be co-hosting a forum tonight in Ohio, a Senate forum in that state. We'll ask Brett about that, plus some of the other data out there from around the country. That is all coming up on the program today. Well, as I said right out of the gate, we're one week away from the midterm elections How are we feeling out there, folks? How's the vibe check? Well, I'll give you this vibe check based on a brand new, this is out today, Gallup poll, not on candidates or on the political parties, but on the issues. Steve Kornacki, number cruncher over at MSNBC, he's one of their smartest guys over there. Like, he's a lefty, but... He lives for this stuff. Data, data, data. He's got this encyclopedic memory. He was looking through the Gallup crosstabs and some of the numbers in the new Gallup poll. And I'll just let you explain, or I'll let you listen, rather, to his explanation of the numbers on the issues themselves, Cut 32. This is new from Gallup. They ask folks the issues they consider the most important, very important. And you see the economy tops at abortion, second crime, gun policy, immigration. Then you ask folks who say these are the most important issues to them, how they intend to vote. And I think this is interesting, too, because look at this. On all but one of these topics, Republicans have an advantage. And on three of them, the economy, crime, immigration, Republicans have massive advantages over Democrats. So when you look at this issue set, you look at how these voters are breaking along these issues, you see what looks like a significant Republican advantage. But again, you go back to that generic ballot And this is not right now looking like a runaway in the polls for Republicans. 
So that is one of the dichotomies of this cycle that I think we will be talking about for the next week and then beyond, depending on what the outcomes actually are. I mean, the generic ballot numbers are good for Republicans. I wouldn't call them great. I would call them good. And good numbers for Republicans on the generic ballot generally foretell significant Republican performance and gains. Now, the bottom has not fallen out for the Democrats in some of these individual races in the polling and then in the congressional ballot. But again, for the Republicans to be ahead, two, three, four, sometimes more points on that metric is historically, especially recently, a good spot for them to be in. The numbers that Kornacki was just going through from Gallup today, I will just put some more flesh on the bones here. They ask people, what's your top priority, your top issue in the election? And the number one response, unsurprisingly, was the economy. Among voters who say that the economy is their top concern, Republicans have a 31-point lead. So economy voters are going Republican by 31 points. That is an indication of a red wave to me. Those who say abortion is their top issue, Democrats lead by 14 points, although it looks like the Republicans may have cut into that a little bit. Some of their counter-messaging, pointing out the extremism of the Democrats on that issue. What about some of these other top-tier questions? Crime. Crime is a top-tier issue. Republicans lead among people who say crime is their number one concern in this election. Republicans lead by 28 points. Kornacki used the word massive. I would agree. What about immigration? Among those who say immigration is a top-tier issue, is their most pressing concern. Republicans lead by 33 points. So if you look at Really, I think the consensus, at least among Republicans and independents, the top issues of the election, economy, crime, arguably immigration, Republicans are up a minimum of 28 points, between 28 and 33 points among the voters who are most concerned about those particular issues. A couple weeks ago at this point, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, I'm racking my brain, we brought you the results of a Harvard-Harris poll. And if the Republicans have a big, big night a week from today, I think we'll be referencing back to that Harris-Harvard poll quite a lot in the uh, the breakdown, the postmortem. It asked voters, what are your top issues in the election? What do you think Republicans care about? What do you think Democrats care about? So what do you care about? And then what is your perception of the two parties? And the top three issues for the electorate were exactly the same as what they perceived Republicans caring about. Whereas Democrats were just completely out in left field with three issues that did not crack the top three, any of them, for voters writ large. Well, relatedly, this is reminiscent of it from the Gallup numbers today. Here are the top three issues according to Republicans, right? So the Republican responses were this, top three, economy, crime, immigration. They asked the same thing of Democrats. What are the Democrats' top three issues in 2022? Their answers, ready for this, abortion, 
climate change, guns. I'll just ask you, which of those sets of issues do you think most closely aligns with the concerns and priorities of independent and late-breaking voters? Those late-breakers who typically wait to the very end, we know historically how they go. They usually break against the president's party in a midterm election. If you're an independent or an undecided or waiting to the very end or maybe not telling a pollster, are you more likely to vote for the party that prioritizes economy, crime, and immigration or the one that is most focused on abortion, climate change, and guns? Remember, Biden just said last week or the week before, the first thing Democrats would do if they maintain control of Congress, which doesn't make any sense, they could already do it, they've already tried, is an abortion bill. Like a, a nine-month, no-restrictions abortion bill. It's just nuts. That's their number one priority. They're telling you that. Republicans say, no, to us, it's the economy and crime and immigration. I know where I'd bet. Where the independents and the undecideds might be breaking. There's a Wall Street Journal poll that's out today. It has the Republicans up two points on the generic ballot. I think it's 46 to 44. Now, that's like a five-point swing from their last poll. Democrats were up, and now they're down. Republicans have come back into the lead in the Wall Street Journal poll. It's a registered voter poll, which I think at this stage in the cycle is a little bit silly, honestly. The whole ballgame is likely voters. Who's going to show up and actually vote? Not who's registered to vote, but even among the broader category, generally at least perceived to be more favorable to the Democrats than the likely voter subset this year. Even within registered voters, Republicans are up two points. And here's one thing that the Wall Street Journal found, this little gold nugget that they mined from their own data. Quote, the Republicans have seen a shift in its favor among several voter groups, including Latinos and women. And then listen to this, particularly white suburban women. That group which pollsters said make up 20% of the electorate, one out of five voters, white suburban women, has shifted 26 percentage points away from Democrats since the Wall Street Journal's August poll and now favors Republicans by 15 points. So these are exactly the types of people that we were assured would be so upset about abortion that they would flock away from the Republicans and the Democrats would stave off the red wave. But in the latest Wall Street Journal poll of registered voters, that key group, white suburban women, have swung almost 30 points back to the Republicans, who now lead by 15 within that group. Why do you think that is? Well, as I mentioned, part of it could be I think some of their initial responses on the abortion question might have taken into account misinformation and fear-mongering and demonization that we heard everywhere from the media and the press. And they realized, oh, wait, actually, it's a state issue. Maybe it's not exactly what we thought it was. There's not some big national ban all of a sudden. That's not what the Supreme Court did. And the Democrats, well, I mean, they're talking about this all the time, but look what they believe. Do they really believe that? They want to allow all of that abortion? No, I'm not really on board for that. So I think that's part of it. I think more significant is all this other stuff swamping it. The economy, inflation, the cost of everything, worries about a recession, worries about public safety. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier who is 
a suburban white woman. And she said she believes under the radar still is the COVID issue. COVID restrictions, schools, mandates, all of the stuff that Democrats and teachers unions did for almost two years in this country. There are a lot of people still very angry about that. The Democrats underestimated it in Virginia, and they lost last year. They underestimated it in New Jersey and almost lost to their shock last year. There was a piece in The Atlantic by Emily Oster, who's a professor. She's actually been pretty good on the COVID stuff. She was one of the few sort of like smart academic liberals who was trying to talk some sense on COVID restrictions and data. So I give her a lot of credit, but... She wrote this piece now in The Atlantic calling for a pandemic amnesty, like, okay, a lot of people got it wrong, but let's all move on from that. Let's just forgive and move on. And there has been quite a response to that. With many, many people saying absolutely not. I don't think you can give a pandemic amnesty on all of the harm that was done to our society, our economy, mental health, children their development, their education, et cetera, because so many of the people responsible for what happened have never admitted that they were wrong, have never apologized for being wrong, and in many cases have said they would do it exactly the same way again and are even open to more mandates and restrictions in the future. They won't rule those out. It's, it's amazing. So this may not be a top five issue, but I think it is an undercurrent issue That is still alive and well, especially among parents and mothers. That Atlantic story that I mentioned, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. And I said, you can't have the forgive and forget until there's some accountability. They're not admitting they were wrong. They're not apologizing. This is our first national election to actually have a referendum on what they did. I keep saying it. They need to be punished electorally. And then maybe we can talk about moving beyond it. But we can't just say, oh, well, yeah, oops, sorry, not even sorry. Let's just let's just forgive and forget. Kiss, kiss, make up. There has to be accountability first. That is an opportunity. To me, it's on the ballot one week from today. You know who agreed with the Atlantic story? She shared it on her social media. She loved this idea of the pandemic amnesty. Randy Weingarten, teachers union boss. Of course she wants an amnesty. She is one of the most guilty, most culpable people in the disaster who, of course, said she did nothing wrong, but also wants an amnesty. Imagine that. Of course, she wants that. Oh, and in case you're wondering what Randy's been up to. As a you know, beyond just, you know, tweeting articles like this and endorsing this concept. The Michigan Democratic Party brought her in as a surrogate at a rally for Gretchen Whitmer and the Democrats up in Michigan this past weekend. It's like Terry McAuliffe all over again. He closed his campaign in Virginia, campaigning in front of tiny crowds in deep blue Arlington, Virginia, with Randy Weingarten. And I guess the Democrats in Michigan feel like they are in good enough shape in some of these polls that, yep, got to bring in the lady with all that money from her special interest group who helps keep us in power. Come on up to the stage. Come up up to the microphone. 
Congratulations. The floor is yours, Randy Weingarten. She is still celebrated on that side of the aisle. It tells you everything you need to know. That should be basically a campaign ad for the Republicans. Randy Weingarten rallying for the Democrats again down the stretch with seven days left. We will talk about Georgia. We will talk about New Hampshire coming up. Some interesting numbers there. We have so much to get to, including Lee Zeldin from New York coming up later this hour. It's November. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Don't mute your own voice. I thank God for this record voter turnout, but don't you let up. I'm Guy Benson. That was Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock talking to a crowd. I thank God for this record voter turnout. Amazing. This guy was part of the Jim Crow chorus not long ago. President Biden called it worse than Jim Crow. Jim Crow 2.0, Jim Crow in a suit, I think is what Warnock called it. A disgusting racial lie. And now the so-called voter suppression is actually heaven sent. He thanks God for it because it's not suppression at all. Also not sure it's going quite the way the Democrats want it to. But they always say when more people turn out, they win. Well, we'll see about that in Georgia and elsewhere. But all of a sudden, the record turnout, hallelujah. Thank God. I guess it's not suppression or Jim Crow anymore. It's hard to it's hard to keep track, actually, of the lies. That's the Georgia Senate race. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, <laughs> new poll just out, St. Anselm College. It's a real New Hampshire poll. Republican Don Bolduck up a point on Maggie Hassan, 48-47. I don't know. Governor Sununu's up 18 or 19 points. I'm not surprised by that. Republicans leading in one of the two congressional races in the state, and the Senate race is tied. It's totally plausible. That's a swingy state. By the way, if Don Bulldog actually wins, he's, I'm not going to have him on the show. I have some issues with him. But I hope he wins. I hope he wins because the Democrats spent a lot of money getting him nominated. This is their guy they wanted to run against. It would be pretty fun if he beat him. That's a six-year post. Crazy times. Lee Zeldin up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. While we are waiting on Lee Zeldin to be joining the program, I want to ask him about a few sound bites, one of which we've already played for you. And in fact, let's play it for you right now. This is a week ago. Their only debate of the campaign 
Kathy Hochul, the Democrat in that race, the incumbent, against Zeldin, the Republican. They had this exchange on crime. Cut 30. This governor, who still to this moment, we're at, what are we, halfway through the debate? She still hasn't talked about locking up anyone committing any crimes. Okay. Anyone who commits a crime under our laws, especially with the change they made to bail, has consequences. I don't know why that's so important. Well, with us now is Lee Zeldin, Republican nominee for governor in New York. He's a member of Congress. And it's good to have you back here, sir. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Guy. So I still haven't quite gotten over this answer. I don't know why that's so important to you, talking about keeping criminals locked up. Why is it so important to you? This is as personal as it gets. I'm hearing from New Yorkers about why this is so important to them. It's, in many respects, the number one issue deciding how New Yorkers are going to be voting a week from today. And they want to be able to walk the streets or ride the subways without fear of being attacked, whether they've become a victim or someone else in their families become a victim, their routine and behaviors changed, maybe they're Jewish taking off a yarmulke, maybe they're Sikh and taking off a turban. Uh, maybe when they ride the subway, they have to hug a pole or grab a, a guardrail. They see the videos of the crimes that are being committed, surge of attacks on our subway system. They're seeing so many different aspects of major crimes going up, and they want to see bold, courageous leadership. We have district attorneys like Alvin Bragg refusing to enforce all sorts of laws across the board. And this is what New Yorkers are demanding that – the, the next governor address, and I've been focused on it throughout the campaign. Uh, I have come with a plan that we rolled out last year called our Secure Our Streets plan with dozens of, of ideas that we believe would make our streets safer, make our subways safer. And when Kathy Hochul says that she doesn't understand why this is so important to me, she's saying that she doesn't understand why it's so important you know, to millions of other people who say that this is an important topic for them. Uh, and then she went on MSNBC a couple of days ago, and she's saying that this is just all you know, a big conspiracy in that uh, that that people who are talking about this crime issue are data deniers. I mean, she just keeps digging herself a deeper and deeper hole. What she should be saying is, I am committed to doing absolutely everything in my power to roll back these pro-criminal laws that have been passed, preventing new pro-criminal laws from getting uh, over the, 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 the finish line to make sure the district attorneys are enforcing the law and that we're supporting our men and women in law enforcement, making sure handcuffs are on uh, you know, criminals instead of law-abiding New Yorkers in the criminal justice system. And instead of talking about that and coming to the table with big, bold solutions and chasing after it with a full commitment with zero tolerance for any of this crime, instead she's chosen the angle of telling New Yorkers there's nothing to see here Look away. Don't even believe your own eyes. Yeah, I don't know why that's so important to you. That was sort of the incredulous comment that she made at the debate. You just made reference to this MSNBC clip in an interview. Let's play it for the audience if they haven't heard it yet. Cut 29. These are master manipulators. They have this conspiracy going all across America to try and convince people that in Democratic states they're not as safe. Well, guess what? They're also not only election deniers, they're data deniers. The data shows that shootings and murders are down in our state by 15 percent, even in New York City, down 20 percent on Long Island, where Lee Zeldin comes from. And it's the, it's, the, it's the Republican states where they have almost no restrictions on guns. Because of the abundance of guns, people are killing each other with more frequency. The safer places are the Democratic states. 
the safer places of the democratic states and anyone who tells you otherwise are master manipulators spreading a conspiracy. What's your specific response to what she said there? Well, listen, the data actually is showing that all sorts of different major crimes are up year over year. Uh, it's it's also even worse when you look at uh, the period from before some of these laws got passed in, year, in years past compared to today. You know, if you want to get a read on cashless bail impacts, you don't just look at 2021 to 2022. You look at 2019 to 2022. That was before cashless bail went into effect. And it, there's just... Uh, so much data, numbers, statistics, I would also call them victims, where her her comment is just proven to be divorced from the reality that New Yorkers face. So when I say that we need to repeal the HALT Act, which went into effect on April 1st, limiting the use of solitary confinement, and I point out that solitary confinement today is not like solitary confinement you know, people might see in the movie. You don't have naked people on, you know, cement floors and, you know, they're in some holding cell where they're you know, barely getting food and water. It's not like that anymore. And since the April 1st implementation of the law, you've had a surge in assaults targeting correctional officers, other prison staff, and inmates. And that surge started the moment the HALT Act went into effect. So you and I are having this conversation today, and Kathy Hochul's out there with her gaslighting and her spin on this, telling the rest of us to just look away. Meanwhile, right now, there's somebody in a hospital bed in Queens who yesterday was on duty, a corrections officer, a officer in Rikers Island, who was stabbed 15 times. So you could try to say as much as you want that you know, you're a data denier by saying that we need to look at the HALT Act and it needs to be overhauled and it's resulting in an increase in assaults. If, if you're that corrections officer, your colleagues, your family members, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to be lectured by your elected official that, you know, just, you know, it's time for patting yourself on the back. You're doing victory laps and you're saying that, you know, everything is fantastic here, so much better than other places. There's a direct causal effect. When on March 31st, there is no HALT Act, it goes into effect on April 1st, and then instantly the assaults end up skyrocketing. Yeah, I mean, and you can always cherry pick data on either side of this argument or many arguments. But I think to try to tell people that what they're experiencing in their own lives, in their families and friends' lives, on the late local news, in their local communities, day in and day out, that that's all a conspiracy spread by manipulators, it just flies in the face of lived experience and a lot of the data that you're just talking about here. But that's what she's sticking with. And that's sort of the surprising thing to me here. I saw one headline from CNN yesterday or the day before that they're like, oh, crime is sort of a dark horse issue in this campaign. Uh, it hasn't been a dark horse for a long time. You've been campaigning on the issue, Lee, for for months here. And you talked about it being personal to New Yorkers all over the state. It's also very personal to you. There was some news today. Last time you and I spoke here on the air, there had just been a shooting right outside your home in Long Island. What's the news today on that front? Yeah, there was a gang drive-by shooting on my front yard a few weekends back while my 16-year-old daughters were at the kitchen table just doing homework on a quiet Sunday afternoon. And two people were shot. They were laying down on the ground about 10 feet from where my daughters were sitting. One of the bullets was found about 30 feet or so from where they were sitting. Uh, the development today was that there was an arrest in the case. 
they have the gun that was used in uh, the commission of that drive-by shooting. Uh, there's a person who was arrested. However, uh, the early indications so far uh, is that the person who was arrested uh, may not have been the person who actually fired the gun on that day. Uh, so the local law enforcement, they do a great job out in Suffolk. They're working the case hard. Uh, the investigation is, is still ongoing, but that arrest was made uh, where they, they have a, a suspect. And they also have the gun, and ballistics came back showing that that was the gun that was used in our front yard. Well, I have to ask you, Lee Zeldin, is it a manipulation or a conspiracy to mention what you just did? We're just stating facts. And what the New Yorkers want out there is for us to understand what they're going through, to speak to uh, the New York voter, the New York resident with respect, uh, understanding that these issues are as real as it gets, and then to come to table with solutions and then to aggressively pursue those solutions so that we can take back our streets. Um, but, you know, in, in this case, and listen, the Trafalgar poll just came out in this race. That now shows us about a point up. Uh, we're seeing many different indications that we have all of the energy. We have all of the momentum. We have the issues on our side. And it's a Hail Mary on Kathy Hochul's part where if she could just convince people that there isn't actually any type of a crime issue and there's nothing to see here and this shouldn't be important to us, she somehow thinks that that's going to save her political career. I'm in this campaign to do my part to save our state. And Kathy Hochul is trying to save Kathy Hochul, and it's certainly playing out on this debate. You mentioned that one poll that has you up a fraction of a point. Do you believe that poll? Do you think you're ahead? Do you actually sort of ironically agree with Kathy Hochul when she just said the other day that she's the underdog as the incumbent Democratic governor in the state of New York? Listen, at no point was she the underdog. She had raised tens of millions of dollars. She did it, honestly, through selling out a lot of access to her office with pretty rampant pay-to-play corruption. She has a two-to-one voter registration edge, Democrat to Republican. She's the one who's actually sitting in the seat. She had absolutely every opportunity to prove her capabilities uh, to, to do a great job, and she should be, uh, if she had done her job, winning easily. Um, but unfortunately, for the sake of New Yorkers, she's done a, a horrible job. Her declaration of herself as an underdog uh, is one that has everybody scratching their heads because in in this country, there may not have been any more favorable a race and state than her as the sitting governor. She wasn't elected governor. She was elected lieutenant governor, but she's in the seat now filling the remainder of Andrew Cuomo's term. She had the power of incumbency. She had tens of millions of dollars in fundraising, and she has just done a massive 70-mile-per-hour face plant, and New Yorkers have watched it, and it's not pretty. Well, in the Democratic Governors Association, <clears throat> excuse me, they're just coming in with some last-minute frantic money to try to bail her out. They're like, quick, make a super PAC. She needs money. I don't think they were just not expecting that, I would say, to have to spend any money statewide in New York, and now they have to. They're also sending in a bunch of top-level surrogates to New York, a big Democratic names to try to help her out. But you've got some reinforcements as well. You had Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida up there in Long Island over the weekend. I saw Glenn Youngkin, my governor in Virginia. He was just up there in Westchester. Talk about those events and what those guys were doing on the ground to help you in your state. 
It was great to have both Governor DeSantis and Governor Yunkin here over the last few days. Uh, the turnout was great. The energy was fantastic. Uh, they uh, they were great with their remarks and spending a lot of time with attendees and taking pictures and shaking hands. Um, you know, in 2018, Florida was at a crossroads. In 2021, Virginia was at a crossroads. In 2022, New York is at an extremely consequential crossroads. And a lot of New York voters are inspired by the decision that was made by voters in other states to, to take decisive action, whether it's making sure that we're improving the quality of education in our schools, uh, making it easier to afford to survive in your state, uh, whether it's protecting and respecting freedom. Uh, there's, there's so many priorities that uh, both of these governors have brought to the way that they've approached this responsibility in their state. You know, you just think of how different Florida would be right now if it was Andrew Gillum in charge mm -hmm. through the pandemic, how different Virginia would have been if it was Terry McAuliffe who is continuing to serve, how, how different it would be as far as respecting parental rights and, and COVID mandates, and that list goes on. So it was great that they were up here. Uh, we, we saw a, a, an amazing response. Uh, we started planning the DeSantis rally the day before, and I mean, just one day before, we had over 7,000 RSVPs. Did he uh, call you? Or did you call him? How did that happen? Well, I mean, our teams have been in touch a, a lot in the past. Um, we actually had an event in August. Uh, we had a fundraiser up here in New York where uh, Governor DeSantis' schedule had to change at the last minute. He had to head back to Florida, and he attended a service for uh, a fallen law enforcement officer, uh, and I served together with uh, Ron in the House. So as far as us being in touch, uh, this was something that uh, was out there being discussed for a long time. But as far as actually locking in the exact daytime location, uh, we were able to just start planning this the morning before. Wow. And then you got, you said 7,000 people RSVP'd in a very short period of time. I saw some of the overhead photos. There's a lot of people there out there to see the governor, but also to see you. And I thought the pitch that he made on your behalf, I watched it. I, I thought it was pretty powerful. I want to ask you finally, Lee Zeldin, this question. And last time you were on, I asked a similar question, maybe with more skepticism in my voice, which was really like, how do you actually win this thing in a state like New York? As you said, just the, the voter registration numbers are so heavily slanted toward the Democrats. It is so deep blue. More than ever, it seems like you have a real shot at it. What do you need to do in terms of, like, checking certain boxes around the state to actually pull off this epic upset, if you can pull it off? The answer is everything. We have to do absolutely everything. Every one of our supporters, and there are thousands of people who are helping us around the state. You know, as a military guy, in order to accomplish a mission, I try to be as efficient as possible, ask for as little effort as needed. In this case, we need everybody everywhere doing everything in their power taking nothing for granted in all 62 counties. When you look closer, uh, as you were pointing out with the turnout, the pictures of what we had from our rally on Long Island, which is where uh, I've now um, serving my fourth term in Congress. I served two terms in the state Senate before that. We've won a lot of races in a row. We have a strong infrastructure, and we're going to crush it on Long Island. Now, we had a great turnout in Westchester yesterday. Uh, we were going to exceed expectations. Originally, we set the goal of getting 43% of the vote in Westchester. We are definitely going to top that. 
in New York City, we needed to get at least 30 percent. If you get less than 30 percent of the vote in New York City, you cannot win. If you get more than 35 percent of the vote in New York City, it becomes uh, very difficult to lose. Each point that you get above 35 percent, it becomes more and more unlikely to impossible to lose. Uh, we have now consistently been polling in the 30s, uh, and some of these polls have shown us now creeping past mid-30s. So, hmm. listen, if it's election night and you see us in the high 30s, it's over. As far as the rest of the state goes, uh, we're going to win. Uh, we're going to win the, the, the rest of New York. And if you look at a state of 62 counties, if you took four of the, the 62 out, uh, where you have Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx, it, you would say that this is a red state. Oh, yeah, and you you really got to run up the score there big time, and it sounds like that's the goal. It sounds like you might have a chance to hit those marks. A lot of eyes on New York City and that threshold you were talking about, trying to blow it out in Long Island. Fascinating, interesting stuff. Seven days away in New York. Lee Zeldin, good luck, and wow, there's a possibility that next time we talk you'll be a governor-elect. We'll see what the people decide. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Guy. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. By the way, the conspiracy that Kathy Hochul is talking about, here's New York City crime stats, 2019 to 2022. Murder up 32 percent. Robbery up 32 percent. Felony assault plus 24. Burglary plus 49. Auto theft, 148 percent increase in those years. Conspiracy. Manipulation. There's the data. Governor. We went long with Lee Zeldin. Good stuff, though. Fascinating interviews. We will get reaction and a map wide preview of the election from Carl Rove. Straight ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad that you're listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand after the show every day. Broadcasting from D.C. today up to New York for the rest of the week starting tomorrow. Fox News alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow closing down today. 81 points, finishing at 32,650. With us now is Carl Rowe former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush, author of The Triumph of William McKinley, Wall Street Journal columnist, Fox News contributor. And Carl, welcome back. Uh, Thanks for having me. I want to start in your home state of Texas. I saw a poll out, I believe, yesterday, University of Houston, Governor Greg Abbott leading Beto Robert O'Rourke by 13 points. That's a pretty big lead for Abbott. Given what you're seeing on the ground, what you know about the race, what you know about your state, if I put the over-under at 10 points for Abbott, would you take the over or the under? I'd take 10. Um, and as I hate to correct you, but it's actually Robert Francis O'Rourke. That's right. Uh, as he appears on the ballot. <laughs> let's let's get his ballot. We, we don't want to mislead people in, who go in there and they're looking for a different name and they don't realize that it's Robert Francis O'Rourke that they wanted to vote for. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, yeah, stickler for accuracy. Help here. Very helpful yeah. to to Mr. O'Rourke, to Robert Francis O'Rourke. Thank you for that. Uh, on that front, what does he do next? What does he run for and lose next? 
Well, uh, the rumor is already out that he's thinking about running for mayor of El Paso, which I think is up next year. So uh, maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll lick his wounds and go home to El Paso and see if he can't resurrect his career there. After all that, you know, that's where he started was as a city councilman. That's where he resurrected his so-called childhood name and stopped being referred to as Robert Francis O'Rourke and started to use the the little supposed childhood appellation that he'd been given by his nanny. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there you go. If he's already planning his next run, it doesn't say a lot about his optimism about the current one. And Robe is saying Abbott plus 10 sounds about right. Okay, let's talk about the whole country and where things stand. We're a week out, Carl. Uh, We can't have access, sadly, to your whiteboard here on the radio. But break it down for us. The House of Representatives, the congressional ballot is looking good, not amazing for the Republicans, but, but pretty good. What are you thinking on the House side of things? Well, uh, I've been thinking – first of all, let's put it in a little bit of context. Uh, the average since the 1930s is 28 seats. I think it's going to be less than the average. could be more, but I think it's going to be probably less than the average. Not because this isn't a good year, but because 2020 was a weird year. Uh, right. We lost the White House, yet we gained 14 seats in the House and what's unusual about that, that is that when the control of the White House shifts from one party to another, four out of five times the party loses not only the White House but seats in the House. This was one of those one out of five times when you lose the White House and pick up seats in the House. And not only that, but it was a pretty substantial number of seats, 14. So I've, I've been leaning between 20 and 25, leaning more to 20. I'm still at 20 to 25, but I'm leaning more towards 25. Uh, but, you know, depends on how things go here in the last week. But, uh, you know, the, the, all the dynamics are going our way. Think about this. This is just out of the latest Gallup. Forty percent approve of President Biden's job performance. Forty nine percent say the economy is poor. Only 14 percent say it's excellent or good. Seventeen percent think the country is going on the right track. The rest of them think it's off on the wrong, wrong track. And only 21 percent approve of the Democratic Congress. Those are not good numbers. And uh, as attention has turned to to inflation and the economy and crime and in some parts of the country, the border, uh, the Republicans have got the the advantage of gravitational forces working to their to their benefit as we get down to the end. On the Senate side, it's been interesting watching some of the movement there where, you know, I have conservative friends who are now talking about 53, 54 Republican seats in the Senate after the election. Uh, Maybe I I can see those paths. I can also see an underwhelming night and it's, you know, 50 maybe and just no real change net net. As you look at the national environment and then you look at these individual races, where do you come down in the overall Senate picture? Well, I think the Republicans take control narrowly. But look, uh, the national environment is good for us. The structure of the Senate elections this year is not. Um, we're, we've got what's called Class Three. That's the toughest class. Every every two years, we elect a third of the Senate. So this is called Class Three. It's the toughest class because we have 21 Republicans up. Two of those seats are in states that Joe Biden carried. And in the modern era, who has won your state in the last presidential election? It carries a lot of weight, and one of them is an incumbent, Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, and one of them is an open seat in Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz. There are 14 Democrats up, so they they've got you know they can play 
they got they got more resources than we do, and they don't have to play in as many places. So uh, now none of those states, none of those senators are in states that, that Donald Trump carried. Now, admittedly, three of them are in states that Biden narrowly carried, Georgia and Arizona by about three-tenths of a percent, uh, Nevada just by over two percent. Uh, and, you know, you could add a third one in New Hampshire where he won it by about seven-something percent. But New Hampshire was particularly anti-Trump. Uh, but, you know, they've got a Republican governor and so forth. So, you know, the Democrats have the advantage of a better field. And we've got some we've got some knucklehead candidates. But the good news is they got knucklehead candidates, too. I've been shocked at what an abysmal campaign Mark Kelly has run. He had a mountain of cash. He could have spent last year and this year saying, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a quirky, you know, independent minded Democrat. I've broken with the president on the border. We need to do better. And I picked out something else that I'm being independent of my party about. But no, he, he has run television advertising that has reinforced what people already knew about him, that he's Gabby Gifford's husband, that he served in the military, that he was an astronaut. And that's about it. And it was only in their debate that he finally said the border's a crisis, and I don't think the administration has done as much as it could. But where was he for the previous you know, year and a half when he had an mm -hmm. open field to define who he was? Similarly, Maggie Hassan's run a terrible campaign in New Hampshire. Uh, she's now in the uh, finally she's run a, all of her advertising almost has been about abortion until the last week or two when she's finally realized that inflation is a, is a big issue in the state. I mean, it just kind of feels like malpractice, but that's what they've been going with. I mentioned in the first hour a new poll that has that race tied in New Hampshire. Is that a winnable seat for the Republicans? Well, I, I got into trouble for saying this, uh, but uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, who, who's a sage observer of uh, New Hampshire politics told me, he said, I don't think Boldock can win, but Hassan can lose. That is to say, you know, it's not within his ability to, you know, he doesn't have money. His message has not been particularly clear. He doesn't, he's not, a, you know, he, he campaigns personally around the state, but he hasn't run what you would typically think was be a, a, a winning campaign. But she's been dreadful. And it may be that people decide, and I think it's this is why this race is closed, is that people are saying, she hasn't shown me anything. She's been here for six years. I can't tell you what she's done, except she's a get-along, go-along Democrat. I'm upset with the condition of the country. I sort of was for her because you know, she was the incumbent and I knew who she was, but I don't know anything about her that seems to me to draw me in and, and lock me in. And as a result, she, you know, she's sort of faded and he's risen. So the question is, is this real? And do these lines cross before Election Day? And do people go in and, and, and say, you know what, I, I, I might be inclined to vote for the incumbent, but she never gave me a reason. Think about it. This is a small state and she can't get above 50 percent. And, and this is one where if you went home every weekend to Bow and Concord and Manchester and Portsmouth, you know, you could you could you tell people who you are and what you're about and they get a good sense of you. They don't have that ever. I, I like the accent there, Carl. It, it was not lost in me. Good impression. Uh, I, very quickly, I want to ask you about the trifecta of the Senate races, in my mind at least. Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia. I've been focused on them almost obsessively. Uh, what's your read on those big three? Well, first of all, I'm glad that I'm not the only person obsessing on it. I thought I was just being, you know, suffering from a grave mental illness myself. No, I'm, no, we're I'm weirdos together, Carl. <laughs> exactly. There we go. <laughs> uh, I, I'm feeling good about Pennsylvania. I think Oz has turned into a pretty darn good candidate. He's very smart. That debate was uh, unbelievably uh, 
problematic for, for Fetterman. It crystallized. If people had good feelings about him, but some doubts, the doubts grew and the, and the good feelings diminished. So I, I'm, I'm, the question is, do those lines cross? I think they will. Uh, but I'm feeling I'm feeling uh, Oz is Oz is a very smart guy who knows as a smart guy that he doesn't know everything about politics or campaigns. And as a result, he surrounded himself with good people and and really uh, relied upon him for good counsel. And he asked good questions. Adam Laxalt's a friend of mine, known him for a while. I, he's going to win. He is an energetic dude that we're helped in the state of Nevada, where I'm where I'm calling you from by the fact that he's from Washoe County, that's northern, uh, that's Reno and northern Nevada, and the gubernatorial candidate is the popular mayor, excuse me, sheriff of Clark County, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So the Republicans, yep. when, when you win in Nevada, you got you got to hold down the Democrat vote in, in Vegas and run up the numbers elsewhere in the state and carry Washoe, and I think that's the ticket that we're going to have this year. Uh, Georgia, uh, I think this all comes down to how big does Brian Kemp uh, run? Uh, the, the bigger the margin he has over uh, Stacey Abrams, the more likely it is that people say, you know what, I'm voting for Brian Camp. I can't bring myself to vote for that guy, Warnock, because he is distinctly different, far more liberal than than uh, than Kemp uh, and, and my general inclination. And you know what, I, I want change in Washington. And we've now started to see some polls that would indicate that the movement at the end is people saying, well, you know what, don't like what Biden's doing, want to send him a message. I'm voting for Walker. About a minute left, Carl. Any gubernatorial races you want to quickly focus on or any dark horse races you want to tell us about in the last minute? Well, lots of them. Uh, New York governor's race. I don't know if we if we win, but but that is Zeldin is closing and closing fast. The issue of crime is going to have an impact not only on his race, but on a number of of congressional races. There's one on Long Island. Friend of mine, Mike Lawler, is challenging Sean Patrick Maloney. I think that's going to be it. I think we're going to pick up more seats there and in New England than we could have ever expected. We'll end up with five or six additional seats in New England and the Mid-Atlantic. And uh, the Oregon governor's race, which is, uh, you know, first time since 1982, looks like we got a shot to snake that away. We shall see. We just had Lee Zeldin last hour on the show, and he's sounding optimistic. Closing fast sounds right to me. Whether it's enough, we'll find out very soon, along with... A bunch of the other races that we just touched on here with Carl Rove, former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush, a Fox News contributor here, also Wall Street Journal columnist, the architect, Carl Rove. Enjoy Nevada. We'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you, sir. That's Carl Rove on The Guy Benson Show. He was talking about Arizona and that Senate race out there. Interesting development earlier today. We'll get into it. Break it down next. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. So some news out of Arizona today. It's sort of interesting in that Senate race, right? The two big races are the governor race, where Kerry Lake seems to be ahead by a nose. Some polls have her up bigger. Some polls, I think, still have Katie Hobbs barely ahead. But on average, Lake is in the lead by a couple of points. Then there's the Senate race, where Blake Masters is trying to pull the upset against Mark Kelly, who I think I saw was outspending him somewhere in the order of six to one, just getting totally crushed in the spending game. But Masters holding his own, coming back, digging out of a polling hole, and that race is a toss-up. I think Kelly is slightly ahead in the polling average, 
my understanding is that it is tied. Like reports on the ground, what they're actually seeing, it could go either way. And interestingly, if Kerry Lake has a good performance and wins bigger than expected, which could happen, as I've said, she's not my cup of tea for a number of different reasons, but she's also been a pretty talented candidate. Katie Hobbs is awful. Won't debate all of this stuff. The ads that they're running against Katie Hobbs are just brutal out there. And, hey, the Democrats asked for this. They boosted Carrie Lake in the primary. They got her, and they might get her for four years or more. So if that happens, congratulations in advance. But if Lake can widen her margin, there is a very plausible path for Blake Masters to win that race out there. And maybe the path got a little bit more plausible today as the libertarian in the race. So you've got Mark Kelly, the Democrat, Blake Masters, the Republican. Then there was a libertarian who was running. And you never really know how the libertarian vote would conceivably split if the libertarian were off the ballot. But for what it's worth, the libertarian has dropped out of the race today. He said, I'm out. Don't vote for me. And on his way out the door, he endorsed. Blake Masters, the Republican. Now, I saw some people sharing that story like, hey, this is a big, potentially earth-shattering event in a very important Senate race. I'm a little bit more skeptical of that for this reason. I think if you've had, as a voter in Arizona, everything thrown at you that you've had for the last six months, and you know how close the races are, you know that the state is very purple and went blue in the last cycle, and this is an opportunity for a course correction. In spite of all of that information, if you are still a committed libertarian voter, I'm not sure that you're the type of person who will then not vote for the guy just because he's announced that he's dropped out. He'll still be on the ballot. I'm not sure if you're going to say, okay, well, now he's out, and he's said to go vote for Blake Masters, so I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my vote. I think for a lot of folks, that's a protest vote. They hate both political parties. They're not going to follow the endorsement of this long shot that they were backing, knowing full well that he wasn't going to win. The point of voting for the libertarian in that race is not because you think your guy is going to win. It's because you don't want to vote for the other two parties. So I think for a large majority of that relatively small group of people, I'm not sure it really makes much of a difference. However... Here's the other side of that coin. If indeed my sources are correct, and if indeed it is a pure toss-up race in Arizona, and it's going to come down to the wire as it has so frequently in that state, think about the Martha McSally race against Kirsten Cinema. Think about Joe Biden's extremely narrow win in Arizona. I mean, it is a handful of thousands of votes statewide that have decided some of these races. So when you say something like the libertarian candidate for Senate dropping out and endorsing masters probably doesn't make much of a difference except at the margins. Well, in Arizona, it could come down to the margins, right? Marginal movement could ultimately decide that race. So under a certain scenario that is not far-fetched, this development, while not mammoth, not an earthquake, could be just enough of a tremor to help Masters get over the top. That's my analysis of it. Now, it's unfalsifiable, right? If he wins by a point or two, it'll seem like, okay, did that make a difference? If he loses, oh, well, he lost anyway. But that's how I view it. Don't overestimate how important this is. 
but also don't dismiss it as completely irrelevant because in a state that razor's edge thin in terms of the breakdown of the polarization, any small amount of movement in an extremely tight race matters. So we'll be keeping an eye, of course, on the state of Arizona a week from tonight. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. today. Very pleased that you're listening. Thank you for that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Well, I have basically forced myself to only do one segment today on a topic that we really went after pretty hard yesterday, which is this blame game over the attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of Speaker Pelosi, at their house in San Francisco from this psychotic man, it sounds like. And we'll get to some of those details here in a second. But before we had really any details, certainly not the level of detail that we got yesterday in the form of the charging documents from the feds, you had multiple days of wall-to-wall coverage of the media blaming Republicans and Republican rhetoric for this individual's actions. We had no idea if there were any political motives at all. It looks like there was at least some political angle to this. Whether you can credibly call it right wing, I think, is very much up for debate given the background of the suspect. But as I said yesterday, none of that really mattered to a lot of journalists. They knew that the attack on Paul Pelosi had to be the fault of Republicans and their words and their campaigning. And so that's what they ran with. They always do. Whether the facts stand up or not, this is what they always do. And when it's left-wing violence, clearly left-wing violence, we get almost no coverage at all. Or they do the absolute bare minimum, say it's a weird lone wolf, just isolated event, and they move right on. That is the playbook. It's because they want to use political violence from one side, whether it is confirmed from that side or not, as a hammer against the Republican Party. A cudgel against conservatives. It's what they do, right? It is absolutely now like standard operating procedure among journalists. It is not journalism. It is activism. Dishonest, not credible activism. But if they can use these incidents, distort them or exploit them or amplify them in such a way that can maybe throw Republicans off their game or force them to change their messaging or make it seem like they are violent by implication and make them somehow culpable in these things. The goal is to stifle their speech and their campaigning in such a way as to shut them up and benefit their preferred tribe, which is the Democratic Party and the left, the progressives. That is where most journalists reside ideologically. It's really that simple. And we saw so many examples of this on full display now for days. We talked about some of them already. And now, and this seemed inevitable, they've moved and gravitated from not just blaming Republicans and their attacks on Nancy Pelosi or their ads. Now, of course, Fox News is in the crosshairs as well. Oh, we're complicit. 
in what happened, even though there's no evidence of that. Because, again, this is just part of the script. So Whoopi Goldberg on The View running with this baseless, slanderous football in Cut 26 earlier today. Listen here. Well, you're in a position Some of this is on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Some of this is on your hands. You know, you, you like to call people out. Well, I'm calling you all out. Mm-hmm. Stop with the, 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 that side is not good. Because this is what it, this is what it puts out there. It tells yeah. people that you think it's okay to do this. Stop doing it. So much projection. That show, The View, is an ignorant hate fest every single day. The whole message of that show is that Republicans are awful and evil and bad. Is The View responsible for, I don't know, Greg Abbott volunteers getting assaulted in Houston, which happened a few weeks ago? Or the pro-life canvasser in Michigan getting shot? An elderly woman? Or Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis's canvasser getting sent to the hospital in a savage beating last week? Is that Whoopi Goldberg's fault and The View's fault? By her standards, you just sort of make it up. They're putting it out there into the universe. The answer would be yes. I think that that is grotesquely unfair. So I'm not going to go there, but she just did. With not a shred of self-awareness or understanding of the type of show that they put on every single day. This was also a very interesting moment in the discourse, if you can call it that, over at The View. Listen to Cut 25. I'll sort of break it down afterwards. I was working for the Freedom Caucus when the 2017 Congressional Baseball Shooting took what place. What is that? My bosses yeah. were actually targeted at the time. Ted Cruz was but, part of yeah. the Freedom Caucus. Oh. Yeah. No, it's actually just House members. Yeah. But um, Steve oh. Scalise was nearly killed yes. um, in that shooting. So that's Alyssa Farah, who used to work in the Trump administration. She's the new conservative on that show. I think some conservatives like to see her step up a little more often, even though she's hugely outnumbered on that show. She kind of goes along a lot of the time. It's a tough gig. Just ask Meghan McCain. But she's making the point, which is a good one here, which is the congressional baseball shooting in 2017, where a Rachel Maddow, Bernie Sanders-loving madman with a list of Republican targets in his pocket showed up at the baseball field where the guys were practicing for the congressional baseball game, asked to make sure they were Republicans, then went and got his gun and tried to murder as many of them as possible and almost succeeded with Steve Scalise. And if not for Steve Scalise's detail, his security detail, because he's in leadership, there would have been an awful body count. So Farah is bringing up this example. It's an obvious counterexample that the media covered briefly and then, boop, on to the next thing. It was like, oh, that's unfortunate. Within two days, all the news vans were gone from that baseball field. As I said yesterday, Mary Catherine Ham, my best friend, she lived right near that field. She went and she saw with her own eyes. It was gone as a major story within two days. But Farah is bringing up the example. And in the background, when she talks about the congressional baseball shooting, Joy Behar asks, oh, what's that? Like, she didn't know about this. Maybe she was unclear on what the Freedom Caucus was, and then someone else, one of the other hosts, chimes in like, oh, that's Ted Cruz's thing. And Farrah's like, well, no, actually, it's the House. They don't know anything over there, except they are certain that a lunatic who broke into the Pelosi's house with a hammer and hit Paul Pelosi over the head with a hammer 
did it because of right-wingers and Fox News. That's the one thing they seem to know, quote-unquote. Nothing else. Meanwhile, you have Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, desperate for attention, desperate to be president. I think he looks at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and says, you know what, maybe I've got a pretty good shot here, at least of getting the nomination. He went on CBS News and he decided that, yep, it was also Fox News's fault what just happened. And one guy in particular, cut 28. Seeing the dehumanization of Nancy Pelosi, I don't think anyone's been dehumanized like she has consistently. I mean, I watched this one guy, was it Jesse Waters or something on Fox News? What he's been saying about Paul Pelosi the last five, six months, mocking him consistently. Don't tell me that's not aiding and betting all this. Of course it is. They're sowing the seeds of creating a culture and a climate like this. I mean, it's, it's, look online. Look at the sewage that is online that they amplify on these networks and in social media to dehumanize people like Nancy Pelosi and other political leaders. Oh, yeah, there's never dehumanization of people on the other side, especially here at Fox News. That never happens. Certainly didn't happen to any Republicans in Congress or like, you know, the last president or the Republican president before that or the Republican president before that or the Republican president before that. That never happens. I do enjoy how Newsom is pretending that he's not really sure who Jesse Waters is. Some guy, oh, Jesse Waters or something. I think he knows. Pretty sure Gavin has an ex who was on that show there for a while on The Five, if I recall correctly. But what a disgusting thing to say. He basically went on national television, Gavin Newsom, and blamed Jesse Waters for what happened to Paul Pelosi. First of all, that sounds pretty dehumanizing to me. This is a climate of hate that Gavin Newsom is dangerously fomenting. Is this this how we play the game? Am I doing it right? Jesse Waters and his show highlighted and kept a spotlight on Paul Pelosi's DUI incident for quite some time. A lot of the media didn't really want to cover it very much. Jesse did. Speaker Pelosi is a highly polarizing person, a member of Democratic leadership for many years. People go after politicians in campaign ads and rhetoric. It's how the system works. But, oh, I guess, you know, conservatives doing this, Fox News, criticizing the Pelosi's. Governor Newsom says, don't tell me that's not aiding and abetting all of this. Of course it is. Actually, I will tell you, there's no evidence for that at all. Let's give you a few little nuggets about the apparent assailant in the case that attacked Paul Pelosi. His ex-girlfriend told the San Francisco Chronicle that he has deep mental illness and severe drug use, causing him to, quote, deteriorate so profoundly that he grew convinced that he was Jesus Christ for a year. A California Democratic state senator from San Francisco says that he is aware of this person, has been aware of this person, and his long history as a nudist protester and activist in the Castro District in San Francisco. After the attack, the FBI went to the home where this guy lives, which has been called, quote, a hippie collective by neighbors. Michael Schellenberger did some more interviewing of people in the neighborhood 
and he discovered that this individual lived, quote, in a notorious local nudist Berkeley home, complete with Black Lives Matter sign in the window and an LGBT rainbow flag emblazoned with the marijuana symbol. John McCormick at National Review pointing out that the man who violently attacked Paul Pelosi wrote on a blog that, quote, an invisible fairy had attacked an acquaintance of his and sometimes appeared to him in the form of a bird. The old, invisible, violent, attacking fairy who shows up as a bird envisions to the man who believes he's Jesus Christ and also has gone on vicious anti-Christianity rants in the past, perhaps in between his nudist anti-war protests. He's also done some crazy, more right-wing stuff recently, at least in his conspiracy theorizing on January 6th and COVID vaccines and that sort of thing. And he seemed to have it in for Nancy Pelosi. He wanted to kidnap her. He wanted to harm her. He wanted to use her, according to the police documents, to lure someone else to him. The guy is a psycho. Also, according to our colleague Bill Malugin, he's in the country illegally. He's a Canadian national who is in the United States illegally. He's developed and put together quite a rap sheet for himself with these protests and and other alleged crimes in the past. I guess he's been able to stay in the U.S. I don't want to speculate how he's managed to stay in the U.S. despite all of that for so long illegally. Could it be the sanctuary city policies up there? I don't know. That would make sense. But this guy is a garden-variety lunatic, That is what the picture seems to be with a grab bag of crazy left wing, right wing and just plain old nothing wing nuts. But the story from people on national television and the governor of the largest state in the country. Is that. Fox News and Jesse Waters are responsible for what this guy did with his hammer. Are you kidding Does this individual sound like a P1 frequent viewer devotee of Jesse Waters primetime? You think they have Fox News on at the hippie hut on a regular basis? Give me a break. We should be able to all come together, condemn what happened forcefully, say it is completely unacceptable, follow the actual facts and evidence as they emerge, And make it not about politics, especially if it's not actually about politics. Or, you know, one side of the spectrum or the other. And even when it is clearly in any number of events inspired by or comes from one side or the other, that is not a good excuse to tar and smear that entire side and tell them to shut up and say that their words or their rhetoric is causing this. That is silencing. It is cynical. I have consistently rejected it on both sides. What is frustrating is the consistency that I strive toward, not perfectly, but I try. That consistency is just completely ignored and rejected by people who consider themselves journalists. They would say, oh, no, that guy Benson, he's a hack. He's a right-wing hack over at Fox News doing his thing. We're the real journalists. And yet, especially in this realm, I think I'm a hell of a lot more honest and balanced and fair than they are. The journo class. I mean, the hackery is strong. And I think 
a lot of their flop sweat ahead of the election is probably fueling the desperation here. Like, hey, this is a Hail Mary to help the Democrats. Let's just run as hard as we can with it. Factual information, secondary. It's not all of them. There are responsible people out there doing their best, bringing us good information, actually finding facts. But the capital N narrative national journalists and news media, just disgraceful, as usual in this kind of episode. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. This morning on CNN, you got a new lineup over there. New uh, morning crew, including Don Lemon. They moved him from evenings to mornings, and they scored an interview with John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania. And Lemon asked a few questions, including just a pretty basic question on inflation. Fetterman had, well, I guess you could call it an answer, maybe. Cut 18. What do you think the biggest cause of inflation is? And should the Biden administration be doing more? No, I I just do. I I think that simply is also, Leah, let's talk about the trillions in in massive tax tax, uh, cuts to the corporate uh, tax uh, structure as well. True. You know, trillions of dollars that have added to the deficit. And and now they still want to support those as well. True. I think in terms of being very serious about uh, addressing inflation is is making sure that those rates are brought back into a line with what they, they should have been, uh, where they're able to uh, fight uh, the, the, the deficit. OK. So. I think I understand what he's trying to say here, which is to blame the current inflation on the 2017 Republican tax cuts that fueled a growing economy that was cooking with gas until COVID came in and crushed everything. The 2017 tax cuts are responsible for the 2022 inflation. That's the answer on substance that John Fetterman is giving on inflation. Should the Biden administration do anything differently? His answer is raise taxes. That's his answer on substance, which is bad enough. I will not even comment on the presentation of that supposed substance because you just heard it for yourself. Another hour coming up. Hi. Good night, everybody. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. From the Tony Snow Studios in Washington, D.C., it's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, 5 to 6, our last hour is the happy hour. And that's brought to us in part by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. I recommend it. Drink responsibly, of course, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. Our website is guybensonshow.com. Podcast is free every day, growing. It's no charge to you on demand 
We do appreciate all of our listeners on that platform. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter, and Instagram. Joining us now, Brett Bayer from Ohio. He's the chief political anchor here at Fox News, anchor of Special Report, every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on FNC, author of multiple best-selling books, including To Rescue the Republic. He also has a brand-new podcast called Common Ground, available here at Fox News Audio. Brett, great to have you back. Hey, Guy. It's good to be well, here. Let's talk about Common Ground real quick. Tell us about the new podcast. Yeah, really excited. It launches uh, this week, and it's going to have uh, people from different ideologies, not just lawmakers from both sides of the aisle, but you know, regular folks, uh, CEOs coming from different points of view. Uh, and the ideal purpose is to try to talk about what they agree on, what, um, you know, the solutions that they can do, what things that, um, you know, drive them, that they see common ground uh, in an effort where, you know, the, the country is at a pretty partisan place as we get ready for this election. So um, it's been fun. We've done it on the show and we kind of expanded it to the uh, podcast and uh, launches this week. There you go. It's a new project from Brett Bayer and Fox News Audio called Common Ground, and that is available starting this week. All right, Brett, I mentioned you're in the Buckeye State. Big Senate race there. And it's sort of an interesting race in that everyone seems to kind of expect J.D. Vance to eventually win, but he has been unable to really pull away from Tim Ryan, who's the Democrat in that contest. Very much unlike, for example, the gubernatorial race in Ohio, where the incumbent Republican Mike DeWine is just running away with it, 18 points, 20 points, whatever the poll might be. You know, pick your poll. He's up big. Whereas Vance is, you know, up one, two, three, four, maybe five points if you're generous. As it comes down to the final crunch time here in the last week of the race, what are you guys hoping to achieve tonight in this forum that hasn't already been litigated in the debates these guys have already had? Because they've gotten pretty fiery at times. They have. And, you know, we tried to do a debate. Uh, we couldn't get that across the finish line. Uh, the town hall format, they both uh, agreed to, and that took some negotiating. Um, it's, you know, I felt like having a finished long, long drink uh, <laughs> after negotiating with both campaigns. Um, but it, we got there, and we're in Columbus. And really the, the whole issue is to be able to interact with voters. And so we'll have Democrats, Republicans, independents uh, asking questions uh, to both candidates. And, you know, a lot of the questions that we're receiving are things that we've talked about in this election. Inflation obviously driving uh, the day, the economy, uh, uh, crime, immigration, abortion. Uh, the election issue about uh, threat to democracy. I mean, we hear all of those things uh, from voters who have concerns about them. And that interaction in a town hall format is different than what they've done. I agree with you that it leans Republican. That's how we look at it as in the Fox power rankings. But it's pretty close. And if for some reason Tim Ryan um, manages to pull this off, it would be a massive, massive win for the Democrats uh, and a big loss for the Republicans that are on the verge of taking control of the Senate as you look around the country at all these races. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if the Democrats somehow pick up a seat in Ohio amid this environment, then the likelihood that Republicans win back the Senate drops dramatically, if not to zero. 
And that is part of what is at stake in that race in the state where you're doing this broadcast tonight. I know you were soliciting some questions for the candidates. You'll have voters asking certain things. One that I would be interested in just broadly on the economy specifically, because I know that Tim Ryan has really tried to distinguish himself from the national brand and from the Biden administration. And he's gotten taken to task on that exact point by J.D. Vance and the Republicans saying, well, you can talk all you want. Look at your voting record. And, Brett, this comes back to a point that I made with you on your panel, I believe, last week on Special Report. There was a Politico story that quoted one of the top Democratic pollsters in the country, Stan Greenberg, who was just fit to be tied because Biden and the Democrats at the White House keep kind of boasting and bragging about their achievements and saying, look at what we've done for you, America. And Greenberg said in his polling and his focus groups or the way that he's tested these messages, he said that is their worst performing message. People hate it when the Democrats try to take credit for things, kind of like a you're welcome America attitude. He said is their worst performing message that actively turns voters off. Well, there's a new poll today out in the Wall Street Journal that has Republicans up two on the national generic ballot. It's a registered voter poll, not likely voters. So that's interesting. But among these registered voters, Republicans lead by two points. And here was one question that caught my attention from the story. Here's what they asked the American people in the Wall Street Journal poll. Do you think the Biden administration's policies have had an overall positive impact on the economy, negative impact on the economy, or no real impact on the economy? 54%, a large majority, say it's had negative impact, the overall policies and agenda of the Biden administration. 54% negative, only 27% positive. So almost two to one negative is the response. And I guess... One of the challenges for Tim Ryan is I would imagine in a state like Ohio, which is redder, the negative impact number would be even higher than 54 percent. If that's how people are feeling, how does he justify voting literally for 100 percent of those policies? I don't know if he has a great answer to that, Brett. No, I agree with you. And um, I think we're going to go down that road. Uh, He's had to um, have, you know, similar answers in debates, uh, but it is tough for a candidate who's trying to differentiate himself from the administration. Uh, but J.D. Vance and his campaign point to the voting record every time. Uh, so how Tim Ryan deals with that and convinces Ohio that somehow he's going to be independent of what has been, you know, um, a very down the line, a support of uh, Democrats in leadership is going to be a challenge. Brett, I have to ask you, looking at a lot of the data, and we talked about it earlier in the opening monologue and then with Karl Rove as well, with a few exceptions, certain polls, Senate polls in particular, sort of zooming out and looking at the prognostications, looking at the data, looking at the national polling, looking at the money, where the money is flowing. I was actually singing earlier on our show planning call, it's beginning to look a lot like a wave, and I wonder if you – take that step back and you check out the final, for example, Fox News power rankings that were put out earlier today, it really seems like unless a lot of those indicators are pointing in the wrong direction, we are looking at a wave. To me, the question is how big? I agree. I agree with you. I mean, um, the best case scenario for Republicans is massive. Um, the worst case scenario is still control with a slim majority. Uh, that's a much different picture than uh, we had months ago going into this midterm. Uh, I think the, the fact that 
you know, other organizations like 538 and other are now at 50-50 on the, um, on the Republicans taking control. That yep. seemed like a, a, long, um, a long reach uh, months ago. It's now not. And I think, you know, you're on the cusp of if a couple of things fall the Republicans' way, uh, you could be looking at big, big numbers. Some of the biggest majorities potentially in the House that you've seen in decades. Yeah, and that's why I'm going to be like a broken record on this on election night. And I'm excited to be part of the Fox News coverage next Tuesday from here in D.C. I know you'll be up in New York, but maybe we'll talk via satellite or something. But I am less interested in the number of seats gained. Right. Looking back to 2010, it was 63, this massive wave. But they were the Republicans at the time were coming from much farther down. Their starting point was much lower, which is why they had all this low hanging fruit to make up. And then. That added up to this huge 63 number. I'm less interested in that this time because their floor starts significantly higher than in the past. The number, and this is what you just talked about, Brett, the number that I think is most significant when everything shakes out and the dust settles is how many seats do House Republicans control at the end of the cycle? And that, I think, will be the historical parallel and sort of signpost that's most relevant. Yeah, I agree with you, Guy. I think – as I said, I mean, if it goes to the best case or even close to the best case, and, and understand that that is uh, splitting the toss-ups, um, if they win a little bit more of the toss-ups or some of the lean Democrat races that we have in the power rankings right now, you're talking about a majority that is overwhelming, that we haven't seen in Congress in, in some time. And that means different things for legislation, what can and cannot go through. Um, you know, you start looking at veto-proof majorities. I mean, it, it's really getting up in numbers if they have a tremendous night. It's it's shaping up to that. I talk to Republican operatives, and they say, gosh, it seems like we're peaking right now. You know, we got to wait a week. Um, but all indicators are it's heading that way, even in some of these races that seem on the Senate side like they're not possible. They seem possible now. New Hampshire. Uh, Washington state is probably a reach, but it's single digits. Uh, and you know, Arizona, now the libertarian has stepped out and it's essentially Todd, Mark Kelly and Blake masters, even New Mexico is in, in play in, in the governor's race there. So, uh, you've got a, a different, different ball game than we had just a couple months ago. Yeah. I mean, I would say, to put it this way, I would be more surprised if the Republicans ended up with 49 Senate seats after this cycle than with 54. I'm not predicting Agreed. 54, but I think 54 is more likely than 49. I might still say 51 or 52 is the most likely sort of sweet spot, but that window has shifted rightward, especially in these last few weeks. And on that point, last question, Brett, this is just sort of a gut check thing. It's really hard for me to get a good handle on, although we had Lee Zeldin on the program today. I was talking to someone very plugged into New York politics last night, and they're very optimistic about the opportunity to pull an upset against Kathy Hochul in the state of New York in that governor's race. I just, I mean, it is such a blue state, Brett. I I have trouble believing that they'll actually, you know, like get the white whale and then eventually win that race. But the fact that we are having, I think, a serious discussion about whether or not that is in the realm of possibility is an indication of the you know, the broader environment, certainly, and it has implications down ballot in the state of New York and House races in particular. But 
as you talk to people and you look at the movement in that race and you look at the way the campaigns are behaving, what's your thought on New York? Democrats are moving money to try to um, support Governor Hochul. They fear that there is a real movement here. House races that shouldn't be in play are in play in New York, and those operatives tied to those campaigns are saying it's because she is the drag on the ticket uh, at the top. They're bringing in surrogates to try to help her. But the messaging that she's had in the past few days is that crime is made up as far as a, an issue. That is not a message, just like you talked about Greenberg with the economy message and telling people how great they have it because of everything they've done. If the message from the governor of New York is crime is made up by Republican operatives, um, that doesn't sit well with any community because they feel it. They see it every day. Yeah, Uh, I tweeted earlier, and I think this kind of encapsulates my read on the race. I'm not sure if even Kathy Hochul can manage to lose in a state that blue statewide, but she is certainly trying and she might just pull it off. We'll know very soon about a week from now, although the New York voting sometimes and the counting of the votes takes forever in that state. So we might have a week ahead of us of a lot of interesting results pouring in from across the country tonight. All eyes on Fox News Channel will be on the Buckeye state of Ohio, where Tim Ryan, the Democrat, J.D. Vance, the Republican, having a forum in that Contested Senate race, 6 p.m. Eastern time on FNC. Brett Bayer, Martha McCallum doing the questioning in that town hall format. Should be very interesting. Brett, good luck tonight. We'll be watching and we'll talk soon. Okay, guys. Thanks. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Glad to have you on board. So earlier this morning on Fox and Friends, our colleague Rachel Campos Duffy, who is just delightful, by the way, she did one of these diner events that Fox and Friends likes to do. She went there with a camera crew and microphones and lights and the whole thing. And she was talking to people having breakfast at a diner in Staten Island, New York, which is the one conservative borough in New York City. And if Lee Zeldin wants to really have any chance of winning the governorship, he needs to hope that Turnout is way up in Staten Island, then just blowing it out on Long Island and upstate and then winning a surprising number of votes in the city from like pockets of neighborhoods, Asians, Jewish communities, that kind of thing. You add that all up, plus lower depressed turnout from Democrats and other places. That would be the equation that Zeldin would need to pull off what would be the upset of the cycle, I would say, although I guess you never know. So in Staten Island, this very conservative part of New York City, Rachel Campos Duffy went around and was asking these folks at the diner, munching on their breakfast, what do they think about politics? How are they feeling about things? And I think it's just interesting, period. It is also, I would say, added value entertaining because these are some of the most wonderful, tremendous New York accents you're ever going to hear. We put together just a little montage and... Just enjoy together. Cut 31. I'm just worried about the crime coming to Staten Island lately. It's been terrible. There was a child shot in Tottenville High School not too long ago. It was at uh, my daughter-in-law's house right out of her driveway. They stole her car, and they found it in New Jersey. My, my, actually, my son tracked the car because the police cannot 
race after the cars being stolen, I guess. They raced through the streets, and uh, they found the car in New Jersey. They drove it 24 hours straight. She's hiding a lot, I guess, to uh, um, make it seem nice and stuff, but it's it's bad. It's The subways are horrible. The defund the police is horrible. Um, we need to bring back all good things in uh, Staten Island and New York because I don't know what we're going to do if Lee Zeldin does not get in. Is there anything going well? Not at the moment, except breakfast here. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad line there. Yes, fantastic accents. But also, I think the point being made by those two ladies in particular is about crime. It's not some made-up thing, Governor Hochul. It's not a conspiracy pushed by Republican operatives in the New York Post or whatever. I know, who was it, Philip Bump at the... Washington Post saying, oh, this is all a Fox News story. No, people are seeing it in their communities. And the more you insult them and tell them they're not seeing it, the more, I think, angry and offended they get. And that is the type of political climate that could lead to some pretty shocking results. And it feels like whatever would be smart and good political best practices for Hochul and company to attempt – She's doing the opposite, which is why it's a fascinating contest to watch. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour back after this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. We're a week away from the midterm elections. And to that end, earlier on the program... We welcome back Carl Rove, the architect, author, columnist, Fox News contributor, to break down where he sees the elections going. Here's a taste of Carl's analysis. Listen, we're a week out, Carl. Uh, We can't have access, sadly, to your whiteboard here on the radio, but break it down for us. The House of Representatives, the congressional ballot is looking good, not amazing for the Republicans, but, but pretty good. What are you thinking on the House side of things? Well, uh, I've been thinking – first of all, let's put it in a little bit of context. Uh, the average since the 1930s is 28 seats. I think it's going to be less than the average. could be more, but I think it's going to be probably less than the average. Not because this isn't a good year, but because 2020 was a weird year. Uh, right. We lost the White House, yet we gained 14 seats in the House. And what's unusual about that, that is that when the control of the White House shifts from one party to another – Four out of five times, the party loses not only the White House, but seats in the House. This was one of those one out of five times when you lose the White House and pick up seats in the House. And not only that, but it was a pretty substantial number of seats, 14. So I've I've been leaning between 20 and 25, leaning more to 20. I'm still at 20 to 25, but I'm leaning more towards 25. Uh, But, you know, depends on how things go here in the last week. But uh, you know, the, the, all the dynamics are going our way. Think about this. This is just out of the latest Gallup. Forty percent approve of President Biden's job performance. Forty nine percent say the economy is poor. Only 14 percent say it's excellent or good. Seventeen percent think the country is going on the right track. The rest of them think it's off on the wrong, wrong track. And only 21 percent approve of the Democratic Congress. Those are not good numbers. And uh, as attention has turned to, to inflation and the economy and crime and in some parts of the country, the border, uh, the Republicans have got the, the advantage of gravitational forces working to their 
to their benefit as we get down to the end. On the Senate side, it's been interesting watching some of the movement there where, you know, I have conservative friends who are now talking about 53, 54 Republican seats in the Senate after the election. Uh, Maybe I, I can see those paths. I can also see an underwhelming night and it's, you know, 50 maybe and just no real change net net. As you look at the national environment and then you look at these individual races, where do you come down in the overall Senate picture? Well, I think the Republicans take control narrowly. But look, uh, the national environment is good for us. The structure of the Senate elections this year is not. Uh, we're, we've got what's called Class 3. That's the toughest class. Every, every two years, we elect a third of the Senate. So this is called Class 3. It's the toughest class because we have 21 Republicans up. Two of those seats are in states that Joe Biden carried. And in the modern era, who has won your state in the last presidential election? It carries a lot of weight. And one of them is an incumbent, Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, and one of them is an open seat in Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz. My full interview and that entire analysis from Carl Rove, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we return, it's the home stretch. Last night was Halloween. We'll talk about how it went for the whole crew. I think Christine might have bothered to show up today for work. I'm not actually sure about that. So we'll see together if she's actually here. The suspense is killing me. We'll get to that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Tuesday on the Guy Benson Show from D.C. Up to New York for the rest of the week. Podcast always free no matter where we're doing the show from. It's on demand for you, GuyBensonShow.com. You have lots of options to access that free podcast. All right, so yesterday was Halloween, and I believe producer Christine showed up for work today. I'm not sure about that. Christine, you're back from vacation, I think. Are you there? Guy Benson, it was not a vacation. It was my daughter's Halloween. I had to take her. A lot of rest and relaxation. Just kick back, put your feet up a little bit, and let Wyatt and Dan and yours truly just slave (sighs) over the show eight days before an election. But we're glad (laughs) that you deigned to show up today and join us here now that we're a week out from the election. You did send us some photos from your daughter's school event, the Halloween event. Now, Megan in these photos, is she an angel? What is her character? Yes, she is an angel, although she was very upset because nobody seemed to know that she was an angel. And people either thought she was a fairy or some, like, goddess, and uh, that really bothered her. Okay. Well, I mean, I saw the photo of her, and immediately it kind of struck me as maybe like she was in a Christmas pageant. She had the angel look about her in that context but if you're in maybe a halloween mindset you would think alternative options like they did so did she not have a halo i'm trying to remember like what was it that didn't sell the costume with some people i think no she didn't have a halo she had like a headband so people thought it was more like hippie-ish i don't know she was very upset to her it was a halloween fail we got to do better next year Okay. I mean, duly noted, we can improve. We can take a whole day off and still have trouble with the costume, apparently. Now, in the photo, 
<laughs> in the photo that you sent the group, your daughter, and I had to zoom in for this, but your daughter is giving quite a judgmental look to the boy in her class who is standing next to her wearing a Halloween costume. And would you like to share with the class what he was dressed up as? I swear this is true. Well, apparently... Megan did not like the fact, and he is the class clown, and Megan doesn't like that either because she likes to be serious in school, but he showed up as a hot dog, and I thought it was a genius, <laughs> genius costume. I can imagine you like the mom in Mean Girls <laughs> with the camcorder, maybe a little bit drunk, wooing from the audience, but not for your own daughter, for the hot dog guy, because that's truly like, that's your son from another mother. Dressed up as a hot dog. That's your jam, Christine. And he had more toppings, I think, on his costume than your famous costume. Well, I he did, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But Megan said uh, he is a bad boy, mommy, and uh, he it was a silly costume. So I then bad had to boy. break out. Yeah, he's bad. It's your type, very bad. <laughs> he's always in trouble. He's always talking. She said. Well, I mean, he had the hot dog costume, and he looked very happy in it. She looked. <laughs> unhappy right she was very much having none of it she was throwing some pretty serious shade with her facial expression which is hilarious like it's just so perfect that this is your daughter reacting the way that she did to a costume that is near and dear to your heart i have to tell you christine i had my good friend from home dan duva over for dinner last night because he's the play-by-play broadcaster for the vegas golden knights in the nhl They are in Washington playing the Capitals tonight, just down the road from here. So they flew in yesterday. He said, hey, are you around? I said, yeah, come on over. You can help us do trick-or-treating with the kids, and we'll cook some dinner. And we were sitting at dinner talking about a bunch of different topics, and he listens to the show almost every day, usually on the podcast. And so he was asking about certain updates and certain inside jokes, and he definitely is very much up on a lot of our nonsense here. And then the text came in from you with the photo of your daughter next to the hot dog kid. (laughs) And so I said, Dan, you're not going to believe this. So I zoomed in with my fingers on the iPhone just to show your daughter. Like this is Christine's daughter, Megan, who we talk about on the podcast at her Halloween event at school. And he looks at it. He says, oh, okay, nice. And I said, look at this facial expression. He said, okay. And I said, now look at the boy that she is giving the expression to. And then I just panned over. And Dan burst out laughing. He could not believe it was real. But in fact, it was real. And Christine, your hot dog costume and your total lack of shame slash affirmative pride about your hot dog costume bet that you lost has become enough of a thing among our audience that you are getting tweets now from listeners at Cookies Jar 1988 telling you what exactly? I had a mom tweet me this morning of a picture of her daughter and her daughter's friend dressed up as hot dogs. And it was because of my influence. So I am officially an influencer. It's exciting. Oh, Lord help us. Are you on TikTok, Christine? Not yet, but I think, I think that's coming. And, you know, I'm going to get those, you know, special codes to give you like 10% off a hot dog costume somewhere. I'll figure it all out. Is your persona on TikTok going to be... I don't know, like a rapping hot dog, like C. Diddy meets a street food treat. 
I don't know because I'm also cookie. So there's a lot of food going around here. I gotta, I gotta figure it all out. Um, I'll probably just ask who your ma- manager and agent are, so then I could figure well, it out myself. I'm not on TikTok because it's a CCP espionage tool. <laughs> well, we're gonna get you on TikTok. They had remember the bosses wanted us on TikTok for a very long time. And I'm just, it's, it's not for me. I want to also point out, we mentioned this briefly on the show yesterday, but you might have missed it, obviously, because you weren't here. Did you see that some of our listeners dressed up for Halloween as the Finnish long drink, our sponsor here in the happy hour? And it was so good. The costumes were so good that the long drink put that photo on their official Instagram page. Unbelievable. You, too, are an influencer. So, I mean, we're both pretty popular, I'd have to so say. So the the guy, the listener, I think he and his girlfriend or wife both listen, but I think he's the one who listens more regularly. So he sent me the photos of them, a few different shots of them dressed as one black can, one red can of the long drink while drinking the long drink. So they were – it was like they were dressed as the cans while drinking the cans. I thought it was hilarious. So I posted it on my social media, like my personal social media Instagram and Twitter, the long drink picked it up, put it on their official Instagram and said, this is our favorite costume that we've seen all year. We're a little bit biased. So I saw that come across my feed organically. And so because this listener had sent me a private message on Instagram, I then responded. I sent him the link. I was like, look, you made it. And he responded, and they say dreams don't come true. (laughs) which I thought was a pretty good response. So tip of the cap to them. All right, Christine, I am dying to know how was the trick-or-treating environment last night in your apartment building? How many people participated? Remember last week there was some study that said more than half of Americans were not handing out candy. We said we were going to use your building as like a barometer for that because you had to put decoration on the door to indicate that kids were welcome. What would you say the breakdown was in your building? All right. You're going to be very disappointed in this. But uh, Megan, that was her third round of trick-or-treating, so we didn't do it. And we only got one trick-or-treater ourselves. So right now I'm staring at $100 worth of candy that we do not know what to do with. Did word get around who lives in the apartment? They're just like, avoid that unit. I don't know what happened. I had carved pumpkins at the front. We decorated the door. I don't I What I think happened was up in the Northeast, it was absolutely gorgeous. So we started trick-or-treating outside around 3.30. Oh, we, we had back. rain here. We had bad oh, was, rain here. So it was a quiet oh, night trick-or-treating-wise here. We got, we got a decent number of people who showed up, but not nearly as many as last year. Last year was a beautiful night. We actually sat out in the driveway. We had a few drinks. We made a whole production out of it. We had dinner out there just hanging out, music on, very inviting. We had tons of trick-or-treaters last year. This year it was rainy and wet, so people had to come to the door and ring the doorbell. And we got some but not as many because I think literally there was a damper on the evening. Oh, that's a bummer. No, it was like in the 70s here. Kids didn't need their jackets, so there were full costumes. We started around 3.30. We went back to our old neighborhood. And let me just tell you something. Trick-or-treating in the afternoon? Yeah, we started at 3.30. What? See, to me, the absolute earliest is maybe 5 p.m. Well, she's nine. I mean, she was exhausted by seven. 
She was ready. She was done. But let me tell you Were something. Were you in we costume? Went, um, I had a witch's hat on and I had like a pumpkin sweater. So I, I looked cute, you know, a cute mom of someone going trick-or-treating. But no, I didn't have an actual costume. I'm still not committed yet to buy the cookie one. I need the perfect place for me to buy the cookie costume. It has to be did perfect. You, did you bring anything with you? During the trick-or-treating, like Megan had her little <laughs> bag for candy. Did you have a bag for candy or did, did you bring anything along? So, and I, you cannot judge me for this because oh, I, I know would never. every parent out there that went trick-or-treating last night knows what I'm talking about. When you saw the parents walking by with those Yeti cups, you know there was not coffee in there or water. I think we all had like little koozies or you know yeti cups mm. or any kind of cups and mm-hmm. the beer was flowing the beer was a flowing was it beer or was it something else a so stronger uh, for, for me, mama no 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 for me it was just beer because that's like to me it's like kind of just like soda you know just like a light thing you're with the mm. kids you don't want to you know you're not going to be chugging vodka there was there was no vodka no, By the no. way, speaking of vodka, not vodka, we were making fun of you for your pronunciation again last week. You were fighting back saying you hear nothing wrong. And then what mm-hmm. happened, Christine? You got some independent feedback, didn't you? Oh, my gosh. We didn't talk about this yet? No. So I don't know. I can't believe this guy. But um, the higher ups at Fox News wanted me to do some voiceover work. So I was, like, you know, just voicing some ads that would, you know, be playing throughout, you know, the shows and stuff. And I did all the um, commercials and I sent it along. And right after our show ends, I get an email and said, some feedback, we need you to fix some of these commercials because it looks like you aren't pronouncing the letter D in <laughs> any of them. <laughs> it's so gratifying to be proven correct so quickly it's so like that came in that day, right? We had the conversation, and that day you got the <laughs> feedback about dropping your D's. Yes, and then poor Dan had to record it, and I'm like, Dan, does it sound? He's like, All right, let's. He had to like work with me. <laughs> well, he's your speech therapist, right? You're calling him your speech therapist <laughs> to try to fix your speech. It's like my fair lady. <laughs> just i i don't know and it's so funny because i went to a halloween party on saturday but we're all from north jersey bobby said it was like a trip for him and we were i was asking and they're all saying it the way i do like we were all going through words and bobby's just shaking his head he's like no that's not how it's no that's not how it's pronounced (laughs) okay how do you say the word m-a-s-s-a-g-e massage okay i say massage massage yeah, like massage. I get a massage. No. No? That's incorrect. No, that's also incorrect. This is, <laughs> Christine, we don't have enough time to do an entire okay. speech therapy session here, but add it to the list, Dan. Another thing that you have to try to fix. Good luck. We're out of time. You know, Christine, this seems important enough to really fix some of your, I don't want to call them speech impediments, but some might. Just take as much time off as you need. I mean, it's obviously not something that you worry too much about. So just, you know, maybe wait until next Wednesday or something. And that's, you know, Wyatt, Wyatt can hold down the fort and we'll be just fine here, I think, potentially. But happy belated Halloween. I'm glad that you're back. And we've got a lot ahead this week, including a bunch of shows up in New York starting tomorrow. 
Same time, same place, as always, for The Guy Benson Show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.